news, talk, passion. The Rick Peterson Show. Hear Rick live weekdays noon to one on CJAD 800. We want to begin with the free-for-all discussion. Ryan Doyle, Sun News Network contributor and News Talk 1010 Toronto host, is joining me electronically from down the road. Ryan, are you there? I am, sir. I love it when things work. Dan Delmar, managing partner, Provocateur Communications, host of Delmar and Devetti Sundays at 1, right here in my face, so I know you're there, sir. <laughs> Hello. Is the government, for crying out loud... Taking the environment seriously. We pay taxes for environmental protection. We say, as uh, those who go to the polls and elect these idiots, that we want uh, the, uh, the issue to be taken seriously. And yet, the city at the municipal level in Point Claire dropped the ball. The mayor even said so. Communication problem there. They didn't get word out to citizens about a serious problem. When it comes to the province, the ultimatum... That midnight uh, moment of decision is now moved till 1025 tomorrow. We'll give you another chance to get this stuff out of here. Clearly, to me, they're not taking it seriously enough. And as taxpayers, we're not getting bang for our buck at all. Dan Delmar. Uh, first of all, I want to address the midnight press conference last night, which was very bizarre. Well, and that was the that was the uh, the limit. It was supposed to happen as of midnight. Yeah, I know, but but to sort of call a press conference for midnight, it's it strikes me as a bit of showboating, and also it it could cause a panic. So that that's kind of a weird thing. But uh, uh, on the broader question, Quebec does tend to be very strict when it comes to environmental regulations. I think this would be an exception well, to we, that. We thought so until today. Um, it's it's pretty shocking because when you see the the aerial footage, you can see the these basins and this sort of decrepit industrial you know, uh, area in Point Claire, and a few feet away there's a fence and then people's backyards is a pool there and you know where presumably kids are going to play it's it's actually quite scary and if in fact they are guilty of illegally storing PCBs then they should be punished to the full extent of the law and I think that you know typically Quebec takes this thing seriously uh, I would hope they're going to take this just as seriously because this is a, a pretty scary scenario and when uh, when media went to interview uh, whatever schmo was in charge over there uh, it's clear he had no concept of how dangerous the situation was he said well there's there's nothing there's there's no flammable flammable material around there and there's no fire well I mean fires can start at any time that's why they're that's why the fires that's why they're accidents and of course there's this mischief people can you know easily access that site uh, before the security was there and, and get up to no good uh, these are these this is a moral question as well they, they're putting their neighbors uh, families in jeopardy if the allegations are true I just Ryan I just cannot get over how the bureaucratic uh, you know set up on this thing and a ministry and so much money and budget goes toward environment now and that this is the way this is being handled yeah nothing says we're serious quite like the floating deadline I, right. I mean if you set, put a deadline in a, a line in the sand if you will then you have to stick to that because otherwise you're basically saying well we don't really care about the problem I mean that's the message uh, whether you would mean to or not that you're delivering to people I think overall if this company is found to be uh, illegally storing this, these items, or at the very least, you know, we know that the 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 items exist there, the PCBs exist there. Uh, their assets should be seized. There should be mechanisms in place for the government uh, to go after the company's assets, have those assets seized, and have them sold off so that they're the ones on the hook and ultimately responsible. The fact that the taxpayers should be paying a, a dollar towards this uh, is a slap in the face. I mean, go after these companies that think that they can use your backyard as a dumping ground. Yeah. Well, apparently that. That uh, that was all supposed to happen as of midnight, and now ten ten twenty five tomorrow, and apparently that's the last morning. Let's what move what on. ten twenty five? Who who came up with that arbitrary time? Lawyer, <laughs> lawyers. No and the midnight was it a was it a showdown in the wild west? You have until midnight. Well, that's usually <laughs> noon. I don't I don't get any of these deadlines except for the fact that they they're not being respected, and it's a joke at this point. 
Uh, Smokescreen is what all this is. Do we care if our politicians want smoke pot? Trudeau, Mulcair, listen to this. I was asked that question for the first time as an elected official more than a decade ago, and I answered very truthfully that the answer was yes. But that does go back decades to another time. Uh, Rob Ford, lots of it, apparently, and yesterday, the Ontario Premier, but not since her children were born, hypocrites, in positions of power, doing something illegal and not doing something about it to change it, uh, doesn't seem right to me. In Trudeau's case, even voting on minimum sentences, uh, that's very hypocritical. Uh, people go to jail for it. Police die to enforce the law. Uh, they use in a position now where they could change things, and now it only comes to light, apparently, when they want to look cool enough to get votes and not actually do something about it. Dan, how do you see this? I I think people are jumping on the bandwagon. Uh, I think that's that's really clear. Uh, normally, I would sort of despise that type of bandwagon politics, but I think it's we're getting to a place where this is becoming constructive in Canada, and I think uh, this is all Justin Trudeau got the ball rolling, and he deserves credit for that because this is a debate that has been buried by the Conservatives for many years. Uh, they believe that marijuana is, you know, going back to the old reefer madness propaganda films. Uh, this is something that is going to be a blight on society. We got to lock everyone up. You know, the distributors. If you have six pot plants in your house, you're a drug trafficker, according to the conservatives, and should be punished as one. You know, it, it, it gets really quite silly. Um, I think they're out of touch with most Canadians. They, they're out of touch with the fact that about a third of us have smoked pot at some point uh, recently. And uh, it, it's time that, that the laws catch up to that, and it's time to... Uh, you know, release the people who are in jail for marijuana crimes because uh, we're going back to the 20s and the prohibition of alcohol in the States. We're seeing the exact same hysteria now. Prohibition does not work. Uh, marijuana is safe comparative to right. alcohol and cigarettes and other drugs. And it's about time that free thinking adults, I have to emphasize adults, should be able to make their own decisions about what they consume. I think if we go back to the actual question here, though, it has to do with context and type of confession. And I mean, that's right. really how this breaks down. If, if you look at Justin Trudeau, if you look at the context in what he said, well, he's admitted to smoking dope while he was voting things the other way. And that, to me, is hypocritical. So he should be called on the carpet for that. I also don't for a second believe he only smoked it six times, uh, five of which were with Mark Emery, the prominent pot activist, and once was at a pool party. I'm sorry, if those are the six times you can remember, uh, then we We've got a bit of a problem with the numbers. That said, when it comes to somebody like Rob Ford, I don't think you can say as the mayor of the city you smoked it a lot and not really provide a timeline as to whether or not you're still currently smoking it. Was it last week that you were smoking it? Uh, I think the other two, when it comes to Thomas Mulcair and Kathleen Wynne, uh, the premier of Ontario, uh, listen, they, they're believable. You know, they seem sincere when they say what they say. Uh, they smoked it a couple of years ago or decades ago in Kathleen Wynne's case. Uh, that doesn't seem to be insincere, and I don't think she's doing it for points. So I think they've got to be very careful in the way they answer it. And the next question these politicians are going to have to ask is, or answer, is where they got the weed. Did they buy the weed themselves? Because that's a different issue. And the other thing that seems to be starting to develop in this thing is that some are looking at Harper as perhaps not being entirely honest by not coming forward and saying that he has, when I think he has never. And I have no problem in believing or accepting <laughs> that. I know people like that. I'm one of sure. them. When it's being passed around, I said no as a kid. A long time. I'm just not into it. I don't feel I need it, and I think he'd be one of those. I said no as a kid, too. I, the first time I smoked marijuana, I was 21 or 22 years old, and I think that that was a good way to go because I think it's not good for teenagers and developing brains. Uh, however, uh, I don't really care if a sitting politician smokes weed on the weekend or in the evenings. Obviously, there's no reason to believe they would do it while they're working or while legislating, uh, but I think we should approach this the same way you approach a glass of wine or a glass of beer. It's no more offensive, it's no more harmful, and it should be. Uh, and we should stop the, the public shaming of those who smoke I marijuana. Di I didn't say no as a kid. 
I didn't say no as an adult, but quite honestly, I knew guys like Stephen Harper where I, you know, just took a haul of a joint and would pass it over to one of those guys, and they'd say, no, sorry, it's not my bag. You don't need to be judged for that, though, in your adult life. We're not all in high school. All right, we're going to move on in our second half of our free-for-all to Syria, and Mr. Trudeau comes back into that question. And uh, should international artists be charged 425 bucks to play in Canada? <laughs> Maybe there, maybe someone says uh, in a text uh, on our first discussion here when it comes to the environment and how seriously the government actually takes uh, this issue, uh, with an extended deadline again in Point Claire. Maybe, uh, maybe they're taking time to check if the PCB transformers belong to Hydro Quebec. They may have in the past or something. I mean, uh, there was a big change over in the province. I don't think that's the big issue. And another texter says, "Ha ha ha." Someone once said it takes the government 10 minutes to spot an English sign, but it takes a year or a decade to spot an environmental disaster. What a joke, says Christos. Hmm. Uh, let's move on, because uh, when it comes to Syria, there seems to be a hold. First of all, I have not made a decision. Uh, I have gotten options from our military. Uh, had extensive discussions with my national security team. We are consulting with our allies. We're consulting with the international community. And that consultation, uh, of course, includes Canada. Does the House of Commons need to be recalled to address Canada's role in the situation in Syria? Justin Trudeau thinks so. I don't think we need to recall uh, the government at this point. What do you think, uh, Dan? I actually agree with uh, with Mr. Trudeau on this one. I think whenever you take military action, I think you should have the uh, the the support of the House before you do that. I think that's only logical. Uh, this is a serious intervention. If if we decide to to go ahead with this, um, in my opinion, something that's becoming necessary, at least on some level, uh, so that Syria stops gassing and killing their own people. Uh, but I think I, I think we do require the the approval of the House. Yes, to because if if Canadians don't want us to to go into that fight, then we shouldn't go. What do you think? Well, I think the question has to become whether or not we're going into that fight. And I think right. maybe Justin Trudeau needs to turn on his nightly newscast to figure out the fact that we're probably going to be in a political role uh, more than we are going to be in a military military role. Uh, you know, we will support the likes of France, the U.K., and the United States in their military endeavor. But they're going to need us to give this, this mission credence. That's not to say you're going to see Canadian boots on the ground or even uh, Canadian warships out there uh, fighting this fight. Because, quite frankly, if you've listened to what the president has said, and others have said in the military community, this is going to be a strike that is going to be using tools that Canada simply doesn't have. So getting the House of Commons back together would be nothing more than an exercise in political theater. Our military will be involved if, if Justin and he would like to see us helping the people of Syria. And uh, in aid, you can't send aid in in any way, shape or form without protecting that aid. And the military has to be there, guns drawn in this case, to actually help protect those people, help the people. So I think there will be a military involvement eventually. But at mm -hmm. that point, you know, that's right. when that's when we need to all talk about it. And there has to be a debate throughout the House, a free debate. Yeah, and I mean, Canada has done a great job in the past. I mean, when we think of you know, the idea of boots on the ground, that really hasn't been our role over the last little while, at least in the situations in, in Libya and in Mali. I mean, in Libya, we used our air force and our air power more than we, we did uh, in other conflicts. And of course, in, in Mali, we had, uh, you know, the opportunity to move troops to and from, not our own troops, but equipment as well. Uh, we'll probably be in that capacity. And when that time comes, let's have the conversation about it. And but Afghanistan, UN, and uh, all UN... That's uh, right. supported uh, actions. 
Right, and this, I mean, whether whether this is NATO or another, or or just us supporting, you know, other government actions, I think uh, the fact that we're supporting the bombing of another country is worthy of debate. Uh, I I support actions against Syria in this case because, uh, like I said, they're killing their own people uh, by the hundreds. Um, but uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, with having this debate in the House of Commons. This is it's, this is it's, just it's significant. more than showmanship from Mr. Trudeau. That's what he's doing here. He wants to be part of the big boy conversation, so he wants everybody to come back so we can hear how poetic he can be about something he'll likely agree with in the in the in the end anyway I, that's what it comes down to, Dan. Nothing more. I, I think, uh, you know, getting involved or supporting the bombing of another country is a big deal and, and worthy of debate. Well, we'll all agree on that. It's worthy of debate. Uh, should international artists be charged 425 bucks to play in Canada? Uh, apparently, this has quietly come into effect as of July 31st. It's an additional $275. Also additional is that it's per person, per artist, not just the band anymore. And, of course, uh, those who uh, who promote concerts and say some of the restaurants and coffee shops and bars, they feel this is going to be the end of the industry. Uh, they don't like it. They've got a petition that started. But I will point out that it costs Canadians a fee, a little more than that, to be honest, to work in the U.S. and that we're actually catching up. And this isn't such a bad idea. What do you think, Ryan? Um, yeah, I think it's a little petty on the part of our government. I never like it when they decide to put these things in quietly without you know public consultation and about a conversation uh, with people. I mean, honestly, if you think about the coffee shops and the small venues, we've got a lot around Toronto. I know you've got a lot around Montreal. If they can't afford to pay them and they're going to have to shut the doors on a lot of these concerts, then Canadian people lose out at the end of it all. And if the government's going to be petty with this, uh, at least be petty out loud so that we can have a debate about it. It cost me twice this much to get my permission to work in the States as a performer. Dan? And you should have a beef with, with America on that, and I have a beef with the Conservatives on this. It's nothing short of disastrous for the music scene here in Montreal. A lot of bands, uh, a lot of indie acts, essentially, uh, you know, when, they, when they're done as it is here, they go home and they're sort of breaking even at this point, right? They can barely sort of afford to pay for the basic necess- necessities to come to Montreal. And now we're going to add the 425? It's, it's not it's not realistic, and it's going to exclude uh, tons and tons of acts from well, coming to Montreal, and it's going to be detrimental to uh, to Montreal's music culture. It's a, it's, it's a really short-sighted move that needs to be reversed. The Americans do it, and what they'll tell me if I do complain about it is that it's you know it's protecting American jobs. The, the Canadian bars can hire Canadian bands. Here's the other part, though. We need the American acts. Like it or not, we need the American acts. Uh, venues, uh, concert halls, bars, uh, coffee places, they need the American acts to come up here to survive. The United States is the same way. They don't need us to have their industry continue on and to be to be propped up. So, I mean, we're sort of at a disadvantage here. Well, we'll leave it at that. Wait a minute. You had, uh, one, you had one more thing to add to this I, performance? I think, I think these kind of cultural exchanges across countries all around the world should be tax-free. Uh, well, it, when it comes to cultural exchanges, yeah. Sure, why well, not? There well, should be no fee in that. Let's not no. get nuts here, but... I was going to say. Suddenly. Small fee. <laughs> for, for indie bands? <laughs> Let them rock it. All righty. Uh, Dan, thank you very much. Thank you. That is Dan Delmar. And, of course, he is uh, the managing partner of Provocateur Communications and host of Delmar and Devetti Sunday afternoons at 1 on CJAD. And Ryan Doyle, our colleague down the uh, down the street, uh, down the road, Sun News Network, a contributor, News Talk 1010 Toronto. And uh, we can read you in the Huffington Post from time to time still, right, Absolutely, you can. All right. Thank you both. Thank you. You're listening to the Rick Peterson Podcast. Hear the show live weekdays, noon to 1 on CJAD 800. Cyclists rejoice a new app to help deter bike theft called Bike Watch. Now available in Apple Store and Google Play. And a cycling activist and app co-founder, Cam Novak, joins me. Uh, Cam, how are you? 
I'm good. How are you? Not too bad at all. Tell me, first of all, why do we need an app like this? Well, I think it's something, uh, it's kind of a, a strange uh, answer, which is that the, the, the problem of theft, uh, bike theft in the city is really not being addressed uh, the way it should be. And, and especially in recent uh, weeks, there was a, a, uh, um, a Facebook group that was put up called uh, Velo Valet or Bike Stolen. And uh, almost daily, there's a new bike being stolen posted about on this page. And uh, it seems like the the city hasn't really reacted to to this problem. And over the years, I've never really seen an uh, increase in uh, in uh, action towards it. So the it's really just a, a, a user response, uh, or a, a rather a citizen response to an ongoing problem that, quite frankly, is just not being dealt with. Twenty five hundred, right? It's estimated about twenty five hundred bike thefts reported to the police each year. Reported exactly, and I think that's that's something that the needs to be out, uh, highlighted is that a lot of people admit never reporting their bike stolen because they know that you know the police are not going to investigate the way they uh, they would maybe a car or, or another type of theft or uh, and so they they feel powerless to to the to the people um, so they've that's it the, the only twenty five hundred out of uh, you know how many other thousands could have been potentially stolen. And how does this app work? What does this app do? So it's essentially, it's you create a profile on on your phone or even on a mobile uh, on your desktop. It's, it has a desktop platform as well, and so you can uh, upload a photo of your bike, a description, serial number, any sort of descriptive um, characteristics uh, that may identify it specifically. And so you now have a profile online, and if it ever gets stolen, with just there's a, a button that says stolen bike you hit it and uh and it sends out a notification um to all the other users to say that uh that bike was stolen with all the information and so all of those uh reports are then amassed in a little database that you can refer back to um so not not only is it acting as an immediate response to the bike being stolen and now you now you have users who can look out for it but you now have bike shops uh, pawn shops, even people who buy stuff off Craigslist who can look to this database and see if something has been stolen and that they're about to buy. Are most of these bikes being locked? Uh, yeah, well, actually, it's uh, incredible the lengths that bike thieves are going to. You know, when I got my bike stolen uh, last October, um, the bike thief actually unscrewed the top of the parking post and lifted it up above it and this is a common technique that's happened to a few people uh or many people actually in the plateau uh there's a thief who's in who's been doing this and and getting uh getting away with it so uh there's people cutting locks uh you know smashing them uh prying them open with different tools and so it really is a a big problem here that people are you know thieves are getting more and more creative all right and how do people get this uh so you can download it through the uh, it's free online uh, and you can uh, go to the Google Play Store on your Android phone. You gotta you gotta scroll down a little bit because it's a new app. It's not at the top, but you can look up Bike Watch um, on your Android phone, and also for um, uh, iPhone, it's in the marketplace. All right, Cameron. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good one. You're listening to the Rick Peterson podcast. Hear the show live weekdays noon to one on CJAD 800. Back to what the Prime Minister had to say today. And Paul Gillespie, uh, the founding member of Kinsa, who is deeply committed to finding, rescuing, and healing child victims, reacting 
uh, reacting to what the Prime Minister had to say about tougher, uh, well, not sentences, but at least uh, those uh, who harm our children sexually, consecutive sentences being talked about now for each child that they victimize, and the government also looking to ensure that the spouse of a person charged with child pornography offenses could be obliged to testify in court. Paul, thank you for your time again. Your reaction to this today? I like the direction that the government's moving in regards to uh, more so respecting uh, victims who are, you know, when they're when the offender has multiple victims and uh, pleads guilty to one with some kind of a minimum sentence and the rest are rolled into it, it really belittles the, the horrors that they've gone through. So the concept of consecutive sentencing, recognizing the, the importance to each victim and what they've gone through, I think it's a great idea, and uh, I laud their efforts. All right. Can they get that done? Get, I mean, we're, we're in a land of... Uh... Of not consecutive sentences, but, it, you know, uh, 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 I'm trying to think of the word now, but they, they all run together. Well, I, I think it's going to be hard for um, people on the other side of this argument to stand up and, on, on one hand, say that we want serious sentences, uh, but we don't want consecutive sentences. You know, it just doesn't seem fair. I guess we wouldn't be having this discussion if the if the length of the sentences for these very serious crimes were already being you know, I, I, you know, uh, put forth uh, that, that we're sort of, you know, according to the, the norms and morals of most Canadians. But the fact is we have very minimal crim- criminal sentences being given out to uh, horrific offenses and offenders. And, and I think this is just another step in the direction to, I guess, maybe uh, put the judiciary somewhat on notice that, that, that they just have to pay a little more attention to, I think, the victims and perhaps, um, you know, after all the concerns they've typically paid to the, the offenders over the years, it's time to sort of maybe look back at the victims and, and give them the respect they deserve. We're speaking with Paul Gillespie, President and CEO of Kids Internet Safety Alliance, former police officer who led the child exploitation section of the Toronto Police Service Sex Crimes Unit. And the government also, Paul, looking into ensure that the spouse of a person charged with child porn offenses could be obliged to testify in court against their spouse. Yeah, and, and again, something I, I, I agree with under the circumstances. These are very unique circumstances that involve crimes against children. Typically, the victims uh, almost always know the offenders. Um, a lot of times it comes down to one word against the other. Um, and, 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 when it, and the victim and the offenders themselves, when they have child pornography and these horrific images, they store them on home computers. Um, and often it's very difficult to find where they are or corroborate that they have them, but they've hidden them so well the police can't find them. So my personal opinion is I think this is vital. It's very important, and it will, again, I think, tip the balance back toward the middle so that the victims will, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, if they, those brave victims who come forward after this, this abuse will have a better chance to, uh, you know, have the offender punished and, and, you know, punished, convicted and punished for what they deserve. Right. So since 2006, we've had a few conversations, you and I, about uh, better protecting our children and what the government's been doing to do that. What else could they be doing? I think, you know, legislatively they're moving in the right direction. Canada is, is one of the leaders and, and, and held to quite a high standard and, and it was a goal at which many countries aspire to. As you know, I travel around the world and I'll try to help teach police officers to use those CSI techniques that, you know, we, we use that can help find more kids, including Canadian victims. Um, I just think that, you know, as we move and with the technology that's taking over, human eyes and human beings can't keep up with the the uh, the way that offenders are trading in uh, file sharing programs and, and et cetera. So I just I, I look forward to as we move into the future more resources put into the uh, the technology aspect that uh, law enforcement can actually do better than they're doing now because they're doing excellent, especially in Canada. 
As always, thank you for your time, Paul, and uh, I hope we talk again soon about other initiatives, and this will be an interesting debate come the fall. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Rick Peterson Podcast. Hear the show live, weekdays, noon to 1, on CJAD 800. The brewing fast food fight in the United States. As you know, there's a 24-hour strike going on in 50 major cities in the U.S., and that's something Kevin Leary wants to comment on. And now, the cold hard truth with Kevin O'Leary, brought to you by O'Leary Mortgages. Visit O'LearyMortgages.com. Hi, Kevin O'Leary here. If you work at a Wendy's or a McDonald's or a Taco Bell or any fast food joint, you make about 9 bucks an hour. It's hard to live off that. Mostly young people are doing it. But now there's a move afoot to raise those prices. There's going to be a fast food strike across the U.S. in 50 cities. People there want more. Now, I don't blame anybody for asking for more. But here is a huge dilemma. These are businesses that work on market rates. In other words, what do you have to pay to get somebody to come and flip burgers? Apparently, right now, that's $9 because, really, there's a whole lot of people out of work. Unions aren't going to solve this problem. Forcing higher prices on these businesses just puts some of them out of business and get much lower returns and don't bring capital to make more restaurants, creating more jobs. The market should be left to do what it does in creating work. Now, nobody forces you to spend your whole life in McDonald's. The whole idea of working there is to realize for sure you don't want to stay there. These are good jobs for teens to learn the metrics of work, but not to live the rest of their lives. So I'm in the camp that says, look, let's not force higher prices on businesses, particularly when the market is determining what the price should be for a worker. Now, having said all that, at the end of the day, this union movement is losing a whole lot of steam. In an economy that's only growing 2%, this is one of the derivative problems. People are having a very hard time getting rate hikes in their wages. That's because the whole economy isn't growing, and this problem is not going away. The bottom line is you have to expect less out of this economy and the government because it's not growing anymore like it did for decades before. That's the cold hard truth. Till next time, Kevin O'Leary. The cold hard truth. With Kevin O'Leary, brought to you by O'Leary Mortgages. Visit O'LearyMortgages.com. Listen to The Rick Peterson Show live weekdays noon to 1 on CJAD 800 and at CJAD.com.